0: Welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francione. This is our 11th No Frills, No Bells, No Whistles podcast commentary concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, veganism as the baseline of the animal rights movement, and the importance of nonviolence in all of our advocacy efforts. Well, I apologize, first of all, that I haven't uh, done a podcast recently. It's been the end of the semester, and I have been uh, finishing teaching my two courses this semester: criminal law, and the uh, course that I teach, uh, co-teach with uh, Anna Charlton, human rights and animal rights at Rutgers University. And it's been a marvelous semester. We had about sixty students in our human rights and animal rights class, and uh, we're very much looking forward to their uh, to the papers that they. They will be submitting uh, in the next couple of weeks. It was a terrific group, and we had some marvelous discussions. And of course, my students in criminal law were great, as they <laughs> always as they always are. Um, the the laughter that you just heard in the background was uh, uh, the special guest that we are going to have with us today, Gary Steiner. Say hello, Gary. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Gary Steiner is professor of philosophy and chair of the department of philosophy at Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, which uh, as many of you probably know is a really fine liberal arts school, one of the best. And um, Gary has written uh, several books uh, and uh, uh, is just about to... uh, when is the... um, well I I guess the one that you're working on now isn't going to be out for a while. Not for a couple of years. That's right. A couple of years. Well, but animals, animals, uh, and the moral community uh, is out, uh, and anthropocentrism is out. Uh, these are two excellent books that Gary's written about uh, about animal rights. As a matter of fact, I think they're uh, they're marvelous, marvelous books. And um, and Gary and I are actually now co-editing a series on animal ethics for Columbia University Press and uh, that's just starting and uh, we're looking forward to uh, producing some good volumes in that series over the coming years. In any event I wanted to have Gary on today to talk about uh, a range of, of topics uh, but I wanted to start off with the fact that several weeks ago Gary had an excellent editorial in the New York Times and uh, right before Thanksgiving uh, a terrific editorial and it got a lot of exposure and Gary got a lot of replies and I uh, am interested to hear what his uh, what, what his impression has been about the responses that he's gotten and uh, what his overall impression is to taking this uh, taking this issue publicly uh, and uh, uh, discussing it with members of the public and not just keeping it in the classroom
1: yeah uh, I uh, published this, op-ed piece on November 22nd, I guess that's two Sundays ago, Animal, Vegetable, Miserable. And it was really my first foray into something a little bit more like the activism that you've long been engaged in, Gary. And it, it's been a, quite a revelation and a surprise, and in some ways a little bit of a shock to my system. Uh, for anybody who may not have been exposed to this, even though, as you said, it's it's gotten a lot of play uh, in blogs and and on the internet, and I received uh, now over 300 emails over the last two weeks, something I'm just not accustomed to. I essentially called into question um, the idea that buying a free-range turkey for Thanksgiving should absolve someone of guilt uh, for uh, using killing animals.
0: What? You said um, what? That's divisive. I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, it's interesting. Uh, uh, the rule, uh, As far as the reaction that I received of these 300 emails... Uh, I would say about 90% of the response that I've received has been very, very positive. Um, And that's interesting because uh, I wasn't really writing that piece with that kind of audience in mind. I was writing it literally to people who I thought were going to go out. I was picturing somebody going down to fairway in Manhattan and buying their, their free range Turkey and feeling very, very sort of self-satisfied about what a good thing they'd done by doing that for Thanksgiving. Um, when they don't really stop to think about the fact that free-range, number one, means practically nothing from a uh, a pragmatic standpoint, the USDA requirement is that there be something like access to the outdoors. There's not even a requirement that the birds ever get to go outdoors or see a speck of daylight. Um, And also, regardless of of what you think, what anybody thinks, the actual conditions of a free-range turkey or, for that matter, a free-range chicken are, we still end the whole process by slashing their throats. And it has always struck me as very odd and perverse to suppose that anybody should feel good about killing a sentient being. So that's what the sort of uh, idea of the op-ed piece was, and as far as the kinds of responses, well, the, the overwhelming response was very positive. There were a lot of people who were vegans who said, thank you for articulating something that I, I've wanted to articulate for myself. I am a vegan, and I, th- these were the typical responses. I am a vegan, but I've never really known how to argue for this. Some of them said, it's really wonderful to see a publication such as the New York Times uh, publishing an op-ed piece like that. And then, as, as you know, Gary, there were on the Tuesday following. So I guess on the 24th, there were eight letters that were published and the majority of those were critical in various ways. Uh, one of them telling me, or one of them asserting that, you know, Steiner is just wrong on the facts and so forth. And then, uh, uh, proceeding to marshal a series of facts that are completely irrelevant to the arguments. And so when you think about, um, the sorts of criticisms that are typical uh, of those I received, of those 10% of the responses, they resolve themselves into the following six general categories. And I'll start with these, and we can talk about these as I go, if you like. The first one was, you know, Steiner, our brain wouldn't have evolved to its current state without eating meat. And... (sighs) And, and I like to think, of course, that my, my own wouldn't have, but uh, uh, certainly uh, this is what I like to think of as perhaps true, but completely irrelevant. Um, the question is not how we evolved, but what we have a right to do to animals here and now, today. Um, And and you could even take the position, I suppose, that now that our brain has evolved in the way it has, there's no justification whatsoever for continuing to eat meat. I think a very simple analogy is the slavery one. One could say, you know, the economic prosperity of the United States would not have evolved the way it has without the institution of African slavery. But... I don't think anybody today would would seriously suggest that that's a justification for having slaves now.
0: Yeah, I I've got that th- that argument um has been made pretty frequently um uh, I, I've often been presented with the argument that well, civilization wouldn't got, have gotten to this point if we didn't exploit animals, and my response to that, as a matter of fact, I think that is one of the uh, the questions I address at at the end of uh, introduction to animal rights, although it's all one big blur. Um, and and, uh, and what I said in that response, wherever it was, uh, was that well, you know, that says maybe we we may have gotten to this point. Uh, 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 whether we, we may have gotten to this point without animal exploitation, but the issue is whether or not we can justify it now. Um, and I, I think that, that that you're dead right to say to use the the analogy with uh, uh, American race-based slavery. We certainly, and I don't think that there is anyone who could reasonably doubt this. We certainly uh, would not be uh, at, at. We would not have the state of prosperity that we have right now in this country were it not for the exploitation of of Africans who were enslaved but yet I would suggest that nobody uh, would at least admit to saying that that would justify race-based slavery. Also with respect to this idea of the evolution of the brain, um, what sorts of of, uh, of things do people say when you point out to them that there have been large numbers of people who have been uh, perhaps not vegan, but largely vegetarian, uh, and, and perhaps almost vegan, uh, and perhaps vegan for uh, uh, very, very long periods of time, and their brains have evolved in no way that is different from uh, the brains of meat-eaters?
1: Well, I've, I, you know, I never really sort of took this up, and I, I just am not equipped with facts enough to, you know, to make that kind of a comparison. Um, but one thing that's true is, even if I were to do that, as, as I think you know from years and years of, of having these sorts of debates and, and arguments, um, people's rational critical faculty just shuts down at that point. I, I don't think that an argument of this kind is to be taken seriously. And, 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 and the reason I say that is because it's so flat-footedly wrong or so flat-footedly fatuous that... You know, anybody who advances it shouldn't be expected to really think through all of the implications and the potential contradictions and so forth. And some of the uh, responses, fortunately, a very small proportion of the responses I received to the op-ed piece were were extremely angry, were just absolutely vitriolic and and tried to give me a, a, a kind of rational and factual dressing down that would put me in my place. And they would typically appeal to these sorts of arguments as the basis for doing that. And there's no arguing on some level with people when they want to appeal to these sorts of supposed slam-dunk, aha, gotcha sorts of considerations that when you think about them for two seconds, they just don't make any sense. So, yeah, go ahead, Gary.
0: I, I, think, I think you have to distinguish I mean, I, I agree with you that many of the responses you get, uh, in, in response to an argument like the one that you make, you made, or the one that that, that I've been making, uh, is you get a lot of lame arguments, but I think that that, what that shows is uh, that we're touching a raw nerve, that we're addressing something that really is resonating in people. And they become desperate and they flail around looking for something to say. And the fact that you often have uh, not unintelligent people making these arguments. I've I've had colleagues uh, at the university make the argument to me that, well, but we wouldn't have the state of development that we have now if we didn't have animal exploitation, which, right. you know, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I've had fairly intelligent people say that to me. And so... Um, yes, and I've
1: had intelligent people say to me, it's well, it's well established that a vegan diet is bad for your health. I've had people, you know, and, and, and all I know is, I mean, I can, I, 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 I can only go on really ultimately on the basis of my own health, but having been a vegetarian for almost 30 years and having been a vegan for almost the latter 15 of those... I'm in extremely good health, and of course, I don't have some kind of scientific control where I could look at how I would be if I had continued to eat meat. But I know other people in my family whose physiology um, is very, very much like mine, uh, whose health is 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 very seriously compromised compared to mine. And so, um, I think I, I think that it's whatever it is that leads people to want to argue that. A, our brain would not have evolved to its current state without eating meat, and that B, it is supposedly well-known that a vegan diet is bad for your health, those are the sorts of arguments that are advanced, not because people think they're true, but because they're starting from a position of wanting to justify or rationalize meat eating.
0: Absolutely. Now, now going to the... You made a comment about the, the hostility that you get. See, I, I think that, that also means that uh, we're touching a raw nerve. One of the things that, that I found interesting although having been the brunt of this for many years myself, I didn't find it particularly surprising, Uh, and that is the hostility that was expressed toward you by so-called animal people. I was really quite amazed to see uh, criticisms of you um, by uh, supposed animal people.
1: I got called some nasty names by vegans, by vegan bloggers. Well,
0: by by supposedly vegan bloggers. I mean, and these are are, um, some of the same people who are disciples of people like Temple Grandin who designed slaughterhouses and other, other animal exploiters and uh, other, uh, rather in, uh, other rather negative uh, forces out there. Um, and and it, it's interesting, you know, when I, I did the uh, editorial on Michael Vick... A couple of years ago, uh, in t- I guess it was 2007 when Vic. Right, the we are all Michael Vick. Thing. We're all Michael Vick. Thing. I, I I received about 1,200 emails uh, f- as a result of of that editorial, and um, with with many of them, most of them coming in within the first I don't know week or two. I, I mean, I was I was flooded. At one point, my box was unable, my Earthlink box had run out of capacity, and um, and, and it was it was uh, it was very interesting because. Uh, Many of the favorable responses that I got were from people who were not animal people at all. They were carnivores. Uh, They were Mm -hmm. omnivores. They were people who were saying, you know... I, this, is, this is shocking. I never really thought about this before. And I did get an awful lot of negative responses from people, uh, many of whom were uh, uh, upset and angry that I was analogizing uh, them as meat eaters to people who engaged in dog fighting, And, and, and I, I found those people to be, again, I was touching a raw nerve and they were responding. But I also got a lot of negative replies from supposed animal people who were very, very upset about my my making this argument. Uh, and it wasn't really clear to me, as it wasn't really clear to me why people were, why the supposed animal people were upset with you. And I guess it's because uh, both of us are taking the position that we ought to abolish animal use and not regulate it, and that's something that uh, touches uh, a very raw nerve within the animal movement, because the animal movement has basically, um, acc- the, the organized animal movement has collapsed completely, uh, I wouldn't even say to a large part, I would say the organized movement has collapsed completely into a new welfareist movement that advocates happy meat and happy animal products and uh, more welfare. Reform. Um, I don't know whether you saw. There was a wonderful essay that was posted uh, on the internet by uh, something. I think it's called the Humane Research Council, in which the author basically argues that well, animal welfare hasn't worked, and, and, and it's you know, it's, a, animal welfare is not working, and the solution is we need more animal welfare. Um, but that's <laughs> that just, and really that's that's what the that's what the guy says. But we call that Proposition Two thinking
1: yeah well, you know there's been honestly there been there have been several sort of flavors of response or criticism that I received from people who would consider themselves to members of the animal community uh, one is the letters that were published on november twenty fourth in the New York Times were predominantly if not well I think they were almost all welfareist ones saying uh, essentially this and this I received in emails as well that i'm 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 sort of Getting a my way or the highway approach to animals, which is I'm proclaiming that there is one and only one truth about this, and that therefore um, I'm being very narrow minded. And more of criticism I received from purported vegans was a um, I'm being too confrontational, and I'm going to anger omnivores. And 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 the second thing that they said was that. I'm scaring off potential converts to veganism because I'm making it sound so oppressive and daunting and difficult to be a vegan. Those were the main sorts of criticisms I received from people who classify themselves as being within the animal community. And as I said, a few of those people actually called me nasty names. Um, uh, in their blogs and so forth. Welcome
0: to the club.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is a little bit new for me, you know, being a philosophy professor, I get to sort of hang out in, in in the in the the famous ivory tower. For those of you who are listening to this and you're wondering where that ivory tower is located, it's on Route 15 um, in central Pennsylvania about 70 miles north of Harrisburg and uh you know, and when you hang out there, you don't get called nasty names, at least not to your face, but people actually start leaving you voicemails and things like that when you poke your head out of that ivory tower and you actually try to say something that you happen to think is true. I mean, so that's actually a second of these six sort of types of criticisms that I received, which was I'm acting morally superior by advocating veganism. And criticizing the human consumption of meat, and and as we know, this is the real. This is where, where the lines of of disagreement between welfareism and abolitionism are to be found. Which is, is it okay to um, you know provide some kind of comfy, cozy, uh, at least picture to consumers about the way the animals are going to live, right up to the point when we kill them and uh, uh i don 't see how saying that killing a conscious being is wrong is in any way being morally elitist, and I hate to think that the way i 'm going to try to get people to become vegans is by luring them into it like i mean it makes me feel like i 'm some sort of uh, some guy on a street corner trying to get a kid into, into the car with some candy by making it seem like you can be a vegan. And only by just disclose to them, but by being a vegan, you're not going to let let anybody kill animals. It seems a little bit absurd to
0: me. Well, there is something also incredibly ir- ironic about claiming that uh, the position that we ought not to exploit vulnerable sentient beings is elitist. If there is anything that is elitist, it is promoting the idea that it is acceptable for humans to 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 exploit vulnerable sentient non-humans. And so, I mean, it's, it's as crazy as saying, well, you're absolutely opposed to pedophilia. You're being elitist about it. And the answer is no, no, no. What is what, 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 it, it, Elitism is the idea that the pleasure of some privileged group justifies the exploitation of some disempowered group. That's elitism. Yeah. And the, this incredibly crazy notion which pervades... The animal movement, that it's it's somehow elitist to say that killing an animal is morally wrong. Put aside the suffering issue. That killing an animal is morally wrong. That that's an elitist position strikes me as turning the whole thing completely on its head.
1: You know, it's interesting you say this because, um, uh, as you know, I I just came back from Yale uh, where I gave two talks on animals on Thursday. And one of the criticisms that I received there from a very, very bright person um, was this. Uh, And it was associated with this notion of uh, my way or the highway kind of view. The person was saying, you're forgetting entirely about the pragmatics of this. By telling people they have to categorically... Avoid consumption of animal products. You're presenting something that's very, very difficult socially, as well as in terms of their own, uh, uh, you know, consumer practices, and that's something that I address in the in the op-ed piece from the New York Times that there are all of these peculiarities that one has to now confront, such as, am I going to sit comfortably and, 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 and have meals with people who are wolfing down you know burgers and things like that? And how should I feel about that? And how should I handle that? And when people start grilling me about my ethics and so forth while we're eating, you know, do I ha- how do I handle that? Do I talk about it right up front or do I say, let's talk about it after dinner or something like that? And the person um, at the Yale talk was saying... You know, this is so difficult for people that you're forgetting the pragmatics by having a kind of uh, ideal of moral purity, and you have to be more realistic about it. And I thought to myself, how is that any different than saying, you know what, being a vegan on paper sounds all well and good, but I just can't be bothered. I don't understand what the difference is between those two approaches, this, this very, very carefully dressed up uh, criticism that I'm forgetting the pragmatics and uh, I'm, I'm imposing some sort of a burden or an expectation on people for something that's going to be socially as well as, as uh, socially difficult as well as in, in practices of consumption. I don't know how that's any different than saying, you know, I just can't be bothered.
0: Well, that's because it isn't any different from it can't from they can't be bothered. I mean, that's really what it's about. And also, I mean, the notion that well, you know, it, it by by saying that veganism is the is the. Uh the correct moral position, that you're scaring people off because it just makes things so socially difficult. That's like saying, well, you know, racial equality is is really, you know, we don't want to talk about racial equality because that means we're going to have to have them in our neighborhoods. And that means we're going to have to deal with them. And so we really can't talk about these issues. I mean, if we apply these sorts of arguments to contexts involving humans, we see immediately the problem with the argument. Right, and women
1: owning property, women having the franchise, one exactly. could say the same thing.
0: Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's, right. it's incredible. So what other sorts of responses? I think you were on category yeah. were about to, to category four, I think. Uh, I don't know. I lost count.
1: But here's another. This is a very good one. and This is one that in my own work in philosophy I find to be very, very revealing. It, it, it's a sort of syllogism, and I'm sure you've heard it many times before. And it goes like this. Animals kill animals. Human beings are animals. Therefore, it's okay for humans to kill animals. Now, here's something very interesting to me about this. Um, It's true that animals in wild nature kill animals, and I was was asked and in some cases challenged in some of the email responses um, to answer the question, is a lion somehow morally culpable for killing a gazelle or, <laughs> right. or a wildebeest? And, <laughs> and, and ostensibly in all seriousness, you know, I and mean, we have to suppress laughter at something like this, because this is what something like that fails to, to recognize. Human beings possess capacities that animals lack. And as I argue in both of my books on animals, um, the pendulum on this has really swung in the last generation or so, so that, it used to be the case that philosophers and others would deny that animals had any kind of cognitive capacities, and that was the justification for using animals. And what happened more recently is people have started to attribute all kinds of elaborate, sophisticated cognitive abilities to animals, as if to say, that's how we can justify uh, recognizing full moral status in animals. And my own view, which I've argued in both of my books, is We're now attributing too much to animals on on the mistaken theory that we have to attribute all these cognitive abilities in order to establish the moral status in animals, when in fact, as you point out in your own work, Gary, um, differences in cognitive abilities are completely irrelevant to the question of moral status. And so what you call similar minds theory uh, is something that is very, very misguided. So whether or not animals can think rationally, can do mathematics, can appreciate Schubert symphonies, which is an example I use in uh, the op-ed piece, is completely irrelevant to figuring out what their moral status is, which, on my view, and I think yours as well, is, is that it's comparable to that of human beings. And so here's the problem. Human beings possess... Capacities that animals lack. We can reflect rationally, we can establish principles, and we can consciously and deliberately opt for non-violence over violence. Over, you know, we can opt for non-harm over harm. Uh, animals, particularly predatory animals, are not capable of any of those things, and therefore it would not make any sense whatsoever to hold a lion responsible for following its nature, which every philosopher going back into Greek antiquity has recognized is just something that the animal lives. It lives its nature. Um, With humans, there's this interesting phenomenon, and that is we can opt for nonviolence, and yet what we have done historically is we've opted for nonviolence only with regard to other human beings. And then... In, what, in a way that I think is just blatantly speciesist, we decide but we're going to be natural and violent, just like uh, unreflective animals, in our relations to animals. And so that, to me, is the, is the sort of strange contradiction to the way that things like justice have been understood in the history of Western philosophy. We say, when we do employ principles of non-harm, which is principles of justice, with regard to our relations to other human beings, but when it comes to animals, we're going to kill them. And so it, it it seems like a very peculiar contradiction to me that can only be understood as, as being a speciesist kind of contradiction to say, we don't extend this consideration to other humans because they're rational, but because animals are not rational, we don't have to worry about being violent to them. So uh, the fact that animals kill animals ultimately has nothing to do with whether it's okay for human beings to kill animals. And if people were to stop and think about this at all, I would like to think that that would become clear. Now, Partly the reason people don't do this is you do need to know a little bit about the history of philosophy and the history of theories of justice and so forth in order for this to become clear. But once it becomes clear, I don't see how somebody could, could seriously maintain that we should be peaceable toward other human beings wherever possible, which is to say, unless you know, your life is directly threatened perhaps then you could justify, you know, defending yourself or something. But, but in, in, leaving aside cases like that, I don't see how somebody could say we should be generally peaceable towards humans, but we could be violent toward animals. Because the thing that ties humans and animals together in terms of what we owe them is the fact that they're conscious that, conscious that they're sentient.
0: Yeah, um, I, I, I uh, obviously agree with all that. The reason I was laughing when you raised the question is is um not only because it's uh it's ludicrous uh to talk about well you know lines are you know lines kill gazelles etc but that that is just if i had 5 cents for every time i've heard that over the past almost 30 years i could be you know retired uh on uh, uh, the cote d'azur right now because it's um it's really quite remarkable how people always bring that up and i always dismiss it by saying look i do not know whether animals make moral choices. I have no idea whether they make moral choices. I know I do. I know you do. And that imposes on us the responsibility to make those moral choices. Whether, you know, the, the line, whether a line makes moral decisions, I, I, have, I really have no idea. Uh, whether Charles Manson is a sociopath who is incapable of making moral decisions or thinking morally is irrelevant to me. It's absolutely irrelevant to me. I know I make moral decisions. I know you make moral decisions. I know most human beings, as a matter of fact, the overwhelming number of human beings have the capacity to think morally. So whether animals can or can't is irrelevant. We can and we have an obligation to do so. You know, and, and I, I agree with you the, the argument that, well, uh, 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 we're, we're you know, we, we, we seem to always use this argument we can We justify what we do uh, to animals by saying we 're superior to them we 're morally superior to them, and then when we 're called on what we do to them, we say well we 're animals they 're animals they 're violent we 're violent right. so it really just becomes this i mean this flip flop sort of argument um, also I mean I think just the form of the argument is, is, is sort of silly. You could also say, well you know dogs have sex with each other in the street." Dogs are animals. Humans are animals. Therefore, humans ought to have sex in the street. I mean, this is just ridiculous. I mean, what animals, right. what animals do may be, you know, uh, of interest in certain respects. However, it has nothing uh, to do with our moral behavior.
1: That's right. And this is actually points out something that's, that's very difficult about being a human, which is, in, you know, we are animals but we're also not animals i mean it's 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 the fact that we have this rational reflective capacity makes us both like and unlike animals and it, it what it ultimately does is it imposes responsibilities on us that you know people may disagree on this and you, and you may you may disagree i i tend to work on the assumption that animals cannot take on moral responsibilities animals ca- should not be recognized to have duties But we have duties toward them, even though they're not capable of reciprocal duties toward us.
0: Oh, no, no, I I agree with that. I mean, I I wrote that in uh, Animals' Property and the Law in in 1995. I certainly don't think that animals have have, uh, obligations that they owe to us.
1: Yeah. Let me tell you a couple of the other. We're getting near the end of this list, and they're quite interesting. Uh, another one of the criticisms that I received about the op-ed piece is that I am ignoring the environmental problems involved in in, in, in all of this, which include the supposed environmental devastation that would be involved in mass agriculture if everybody became vegan.
0: I, I, you know, I, I don't understand. That is just a complete mystery to me. People do not seem to understand that, if we were all vegans, we would actually be having to raise fewer crops because if we were consuming them directly, we wouldn't be feeding them to, to non-human animals. It takes between 6 and 12 p- uh, pounds of plant protein to produce a pound of flesh. If we were all vegans, we would actually have less land under agriculture. We would be raising fewer plants uh, because we would be consuming them directly. I just don't understand that.
1: Here again, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions, and I also think that this is another situation in which this charge is not to be taken at face value. I think that it's part of an effort that has been marshaled by some people to justify the continued eating of meat and consumption of animal products, and they're just they're throwing every. It's like Sandy Koufax at the end of fifteen innings; that was throwing everything they got at us. And here's you know there, there's, there's that there's the fact of how much. Um, Plant food is needed to raise uh, a certain amount of meat. Uh, um, but I, I also think that there's another thing that needs to be seen here, and it relates back to this. Uh, uh, some of the other things we've been talking about, and that is, look, I think with, as far as the, the whole large complex or constellation of animal problems, there are at least the following three aspects of the problems. Uh, the animal rights aspect, the environmental aspect and what i generally call the human health welfare and sociability aspect of it and all of these need to be addressed and and you know of course in an op-ed piece you can only really bring up one point and mine and my primary concern in all of this is the animal rights aspect of it and I just want to say that regardless of what may or may not be the case environmentally, that's got actually nothing to do with the question whether we have the right to eat animals, to use animals as sources for the satisfaction of our desires. And that's something that really needs to be established. And that what it goes back to is this question about whether, um, whether I am uh, uh, imposing some sort of an undue burden on, on people who want to become vegans and Uh, 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 I think what we have to recognize here is um, animals have a right not to be... I mean, if you believe in what I call cosmic justice, justice, animals have a right not to be killed and used for the satisfaction of human desires. And uh, environmental concerns are important concerns, and they always need to be taken into consideration, but they're never going to trump the question whether animals as sentient beings have a special kind of moral status that needs to be respected. And if you believe that animals are objects of dignity and respect, then bringing in environmental concerns is not strictly relevant, even though I think ignoring environmental problems is, of course, a foolish thing to do.
0: I I agree with that. I mean, I, I think that part of the problem has been over the years people have tended to lump animals uh you know along with the environment so you know uh they talk about the obligations to trees and the obligations to ecosystems and the obligations to animals as as if animals are like trees or rocks or or uh, bodies of water or whatever and i think that has uh, that's led to a great deal of confused thinking because um you know I, i i take non-humans and put them on, on the side with humans and if I'm going to draw a line it's going to be between the sentient and the non-sentient I, don't th- I think anytime we draw a line where we have some sentience on the side with non sentience, those sentients are going to end up being treated as if they were non-sentient and their moral status is going to be analyzed as if they were non-sentient but uh, yeah. so you know I, I, I agree with that as well
1: Yes. Now the last couple, I'll just move quickly to these, the last couple of main types of criticism I've received have to do with domesticated animals. And these, of course, you have, I I think, dealt with masterfully in your work. And generally what I I can do is simply do do no more than sort of reassert things that you have already sort of worked out. So one of these two last criticisms is domestic animals co-evolved with humans and wouldn't exist unless we keep them in a state of domesticated servitude. And so one person wrote to me and said, I suppose that what you're, what you're proposing uh, is the following. And it, in fact, is what, what I'm proposing, just as you have proposed, which is what we have to do is, is let the domesticated animals die out. And that doesn't mean we just set them loose on the streets. We steward the ones that still exist. Um, we, we don't uh, permit them to reproduce. The lines die out, and there's no more domestication. And one of the things that needs to be pointed out here is that this would include the pet industry. Um, And I used the following sort of analogy, and I actually came up with this on my own, and then later at one point realized that Richard Surabji had used it in uh, his book, Animal Minds and Human Morals, uh, the, The Origins of the Western Debate. It's this. Um, Imagine, as an analogy, a race of humans who had been domesticated in such a way that they could exist only as the slaves of others. Would it clearly be better for those slaves to exist as slaves rather than not to exist at all? And uh, it seems to me the answer to that is no particularly if you draw the analogy out to the fine points of saying, and they're not only going to exist as slaves, they're going to exist as slaves that get killed and eaten or or used in a variety of ways um, by human beings. And um, if you even read a little bit about the history of slavery, one thing, and and I actually did this because I I take uh, French courses at Bucknell, and the the, the focus of the French course I took this past semester was um, the French slave trade going down to Martinique and Guadeloupe. And uh, one of the things you read the most about is about um, some of the slaves killing themselves, committing suicide on on the passage, uh, rather than be put into a state of servitude. They would swallow their own tongues. Some of them, they would go. They would just let themselves fall overboard, and they would let themselves drown and so forth. And I, I simply, I think the, the what's really poignant about the analogy is, and if you if you don't think very many uh, black Africans did that, consider a situation in which they could know, hypothetically, that they were going to be killed. They were going to be raised for human consumption and killed. I'll bet a lot more of them would have chosen not to exist at all. Um, so I don't think the fact that an- domestic animals co-evolved with us is of particular significance in the question whether it's better for them to exist than not to exist. And it was suggested to me in, in one particular email that I was I was surely not very compassionate toward animals and thinking that they shouldn't exist at all. But it seems like a very very strange and compromised form of existence to exist precisely in a state of servitude. So.
0: Yeah, I I, I I agree with that, and, and um, you know I, I think um, as I've said before, the 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 responses um, whether we. Whether animals benefited in some way, uh, I, I I tend to you know to, to, to think that that's um, over exaggerated and simplistically put. But whether animals benefited from domestication in some way, they certainly aren't benefiting from it now. Um, and um, and and again, I, I I have very serious issues about um, about the 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 claim that domestication has has resulted in animals having any benefits uh... but they're certainly not benefiting from it now and the solution is not to let you know to 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 let all the animals run free it's to take care of the animals that we brought into existence and to stop bringing domesticated animals into existence for our use uh, in the future, that's really what we ought to be doing. But one of the, you know, one of the thing and bef- before we go on to the next point, I just wanted to go back uh, 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 to, to the environmental question for a second because yeah. I read something last week that actually there are very few things that take my breath away anymore. But um, I did, I did read something that was written by uh, the RSPCA in Britain, claiming mm-hmm. that um, we that that wild animals uh, had had depended on. Intensive agriculture and food animal production in certain ways—that they had, uh, you know, that 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 certain relationships had built up between uh, wild animals and th- these intensive agriculture farms or or, or uh, domesticated animal farms, etc. And that by eliminating meat from our diet altogether, we would adversely affect wild animals. Now, that's such a ridiculous argument, but I mean, again, it just goes to show you. Uh, how crazy things can get when, uh, when, 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 we start discussing these issues, particularly with animal, pe- with, 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 a- with supposedly uh, animal people.
1: Well, it is interesting, and it reinforces in my mind, and this whole experience with the op-ed piece and some recent talks I've given has really, really brought home to me the fact that. Quite often, people can be very, very skilled and elegant at seeming like they 're offering a very rational well thought out argument that 's not really a well thought out argument at all it 's just basically a kind of thinly veiled attempt to justify some existing practice um, and and, and it 's very frustrating because it, you know in these sorts of debates and arguments and disagreements. It's not always an interest in the truth that is guiding people. It's an interest in rationalizing or justifying some existing practice that they find to be pleasurable, convenient, uh, or just
0: familiar. And and indeed, in the case of a lot of these organizations, economically profitable, we have groups like the RSPCA sponsoring things like the Freedom Food Label, uh, where they have a relationship with industry and if... um, if industry satisfies certain uh, requirements, which we see constantly are being violated, and they pay fees, etc., they get to uh, put the RSPCA imprimatur on their animal corpses and yeah. animal products. So they have a vested interest in continuing this. But in any event, the last thing I wanted to talk about, last topic I wanted to talk about, is what's interesting to me in doing this work for all of these years, and I've been doing not only the academic, but I've been uh, out there for many years doing the sort of the public exchanges, uh, which, which you're, you're sort of just starting. But it's interesting to me that I have more interesting and informative and intelligent discussions with people who are not involved in the animal movement at all. Um, they will engage these ideas more and more seriously than many of the people in the animal movement will. And that's something I find interesting, ironic, and sad. Let me give you an example. Um, Recently, uh, uh, Bernie Rollin, who is a professor, as you know, of of philosophy at Colorado State University, uh, he uh, distributed a... um, a, a uh, uh, handout to his class uh, that was taking issue with my position, uh, my abolitionist position and defending his welfareist position. And basically what he said in this handout was that, well, we have no reason to believe that the abolitionist approach will work, but we know that animal welfare reform will help incrementally reduce suffering, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, so we ought to pursue welfare reform and um the student one of his students who was uh, uh in the class showed me this and i discussed the um the analysis with her and she went back into class and had a discussion with him and he got very very uh upset about it and uh and said he wanted to debate me and so i um i agreed to debate him and i wrote him an email uh, and said uh, Bernie, because uh, I I know uh, Bernie not well, but I've met him. Uh, and I said, uh, why don't we uh, why don't we have a debate and we'll we'll talk about these issues? And then he proceeded to say, well, uh, on second thought, he didn't want to do that because uh, he thought it would be it would it would injure his reputation and his credibility with the meat industry that he works with, um, and that uh, it would be like. A scientist debating a creationist and taking the abolitionist' position seriously would be like a scientist taking creationism seriously and debating it. And what I find really interesting about that is Bernie is very typical of many of the new welfareists, indeed most of the new welfareists. The empirical evidence is overwhelming that animal welfare reform does nothing nothing to reduce animal suffering. Indeed, it makes people feel more comfortable about consuming animals, but because of the property status of animals, animal welfare reform is almost always limited to ensuring the efficient exploitation of animals. That is basically the only time, because animals are property, the only time institutional users are going to uh, institute reforms for animal welfare will be in cases where it's economically neutral to them or where it's actually going to be beneficial to them. And what I find fascinating is the literature of the animal welfare groups emphasizes this. When they're promoting things like controlled atmosphere killing or the abolition of gestation crates or whatever, they're always pointing to the empirical evidence that these forms of confinement or these forms of killing are actually more expensive than the forms of killing or confinement that the animal groups are proposing. So it's an argument which is based on economic efficiency. But yet the animal welfare people refuse to engage that argument. They simply continue to repeat the mantra that animal welfare reform will reduce suffering and and they just will not engage the argument that animal welfare doesn't work. And then when you call them on it, uh, it it they, they they well first they they offer to debate you um, and then when you say yes that's a good idea they refuse to debate you um, and uh, you know and I, I just find it really interesting and I think in many ways Gary that it's it's more important for people like us to be talking with members of the general public uh, than than really trying to. Change the movement because I actually think people in the general public are more educable than uh, people in the movement who have vested interests in all sorts of uh, of, of things and who aren't simp- are, are simply going to refuse to engage us on these issues.
1: Well, you know, it, it's interesting you mention this because I, I can offer a sort of corollary to this, which is on a number of occasions at Bucknell, I have taught a course, an inter- interdisciplinary course for uh, college seniors called Western Perspectives on Animals, and I've taught a number of, I've I've used a casebook on animal law, and I've looked at animals in Judeo-Christian tradition, I've used your work, I've used uh, my own work, I've used a number of things, Um, and this semester, for the first time, I decided to teach an Introduction to Philosophy course, which is primarily to first-year college students. in which, in the title of this particular one is called Gods, Humans, and Animals. And so only the last third of the course, roughly the last four and a half weeks, is on animals. And um, I thought when I first set up the course, the students are going to come for the gods and humans part, and they're going to tolerate the animals part, because I just sort of went into it with the naive assumption that this is something that perhaps you know your typical person in the street or your typical 18-year-old in the street won't be interested in. What's turned out is... In the last part of the course, which examines two uh, texts, Peter Carruthers' The Animals Issue, which is a a very strong contractualist anti-animal rights position, and your book, Introduction to Animal Rights, which, as we know, is a a pro-animal rights position, and a great, and I would say a great gift a great gift idea too since the holidays are coming up good stocking stuff and for anybody out there who's a, a, an instructor it's a very very teachable text um very very clear very lucid and and uh, just very very succinct um but I have I went into this thinking what I want to do is um, I want to let the students decide for themselves. I want to show these two positions, and I hope that they come out with a certain sort of viewpoint on it, but I want to let them come to their own views. The interesting thing is that the first-year students in this cl- course have um, produced the most uh, remarkably um, um, you know, engaged discussions of the material that they're very curious and they're very open-minded and they're really willing to think about these things and they're willing to sort of examine and analyze their own sort of uh, deeply held assumptions um, in a way that the college seniors were really rarely able to do and I don't know if it's, if it's um, a corollary exactly to what you're talking about but it's very interesting that you know as people get older as people get more associated with certain sorts of ways of looking at life you know the critical and open minded sort of aspect of us starts to shut down a little bit and i know exactly what you mean
0: you know one of the things that um we found over the years in teaching uh animal rights courses uh at rutgers is that you know you have a group of people and the the, the people who will argue um the people who will get more upset and more uh, oftentimes more angry with you are the people who are involved with uh... animal rights organizations or animal welfare organizations there are any more animal rights organizations but involved with these animal welfare organizations people who are quote in the movement end quote those people will really give you a hard time uh, oftentimes, they will not provide any substantive argument, but they will become very, very um, upset with what you say. Uh, they are unable to engage the arguments, but they they get they get very angry with you. Whereas the students who aren't involved in the movement at all, students who are just taking the course because they're curious about it, they're interested. They had me for another course, uh, and they you know they they like that course, so they thought they would take this course. Whatever um, those students who are coming to the issue. Fresh are oftentimes and usually usually far more open to the arguments than the students who have been thinking supposedly thinking about the arguments within the frameworks that are provided to them by these animal welfare organizations I'll give you another example of something that, that came up this week. Um, there's someone named Jean. Or I, I've never heard of her before until this, this past week, I, I so I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but she came to my attention because she wrote something on her blog that somebody sent to me, um, and uh, in which she said, um, Francione wants to keep... Uh, animals in the worst possible condition in order to use their suffering to rally people to the cause of totally changing the status of animals. And I was really uh, unhappy about that because, uh, first of all, this person is uh, is not a vegan, so it's interesting that she's, she, she's, make, she's saying that I, I want to promote animal suffering. She's not a vegan. Um, but... Uh, That's certainly not my position. That's not a position I've ever taken. Indeed, I have made it clear that my position is not that. I'm not interested in seeing animals being treated... Uh, worse so that we can force a change in the status of animals. My position is that we ought to be engaging in creative, nonviolent, vegan education as a form of incremental change because animal welfare reform simply doesn't work. It doesn't do anything to alleviate animal suffering. And to the extent that animal welfare reforms are adopted by industry, they are changes that would uh, be adopted by industry anyway as Industry gets more information uh, about rational economic practices. Production man- efficiency. Yeah, produ- yeah. I mean I mean, one of the things that I'm working on now, as a matter of fact, I confess uh, uh, apology publicly to Roger Yates because uh, the ball's been in my court to finish this uh, this joint paper up that we're working on together. In which, so I apologize, Roger, uh, in which we argue that uh, basically. The changes that are made, the animal welfare reform changes that are made, are changes that will be made anyway by industry. So if we were to take an abolitionist position and and educate people about uh, abolishing the use of animals altogether, what you would get from industry anyway is welfare reform, you know, rather meaningless welfare reform that would attempt to assure the public that everything was okay, but that really did nothing more than increase production efficiency. So that advocating animal welfare really is is um uh, neither necessary nor productive nor nor morally consistent with the view that we ought not to be using animals but so i raised this with her and and i i pointed out to her that i never said it and she acknowledged that i never said she she acknowledged i never said it she claimed that it was an interpretation of my work, I don't know how she can claim to be um, offering an interpretation of my work when she's saying that I want to keep animals in the worst possible condition. That that's somehow an interpretation of my work. But I also invited uh, her to uh, uh, debate, and um, and she wouldn't. Uh, and, um, you know, and so I, I, I find it disturbing. Now she's obviously, she's a, she's a, a big fan of Temple Grandin and, uh, she's not a vegan and she promotes welfare reform. But you would think that, uh, somebody, you know, that you would think that people like Rollin and, uh, people like, uh, this, uh, uh, Kazaz, uh, Person would be interested in debating and discussing. If they're taking the position that welfare reform is a a good idea, then you would think that they would be able to address the arguments that I make that animal welfare reform, as an empirical matter, historically has done nothing more than increase production efficiency. But they won't. They simply keep repeating the mantra. And you know, you get to the point where you start wondering. Is it really misunderstanding on their part, or is it simply outright misrepresentation and and you know and that's that troubles me because it troubles me to think, particularly people in academic institutions who have the responsibility to educate young people to, to, to think that what they 're doing is intentionally misrepresenting an idea uh, is distressing to me, but it is clear to me that uh, these folks. Uh, that they don't understand the argument that welfare reform doesn't work, but that, more importantly, they're not really willing to engage it on any level whatsoever, except to misrepresent it, uh, except to you know make uh, claims like, uh, you know, I really want animals to suffer more.
1: Yes, well, you know, as I, as I said before, I think one thing I'm learning more and more is that often the positions that people represent or the... the the disputes that they they engage in and the way they engage in them are not really based on an interest in finding out the truth. Um, so, for instance, the person who says, look, you got to think more about the pragmatics. My attitude is you know, look, let's just be clear about what is really the truth. Let's be clear about what's really going on here. Let's be clear about what it means to embrace a welfareist position. And then we can talk about the pragmatics. But how is somebody supposed to proceed pragmatically without having a sense of what they think is right and wrong? A way to put... Um, the position of this uh, person from SMU you're talking about into into focus is, let me just read you the brief letter that uh, she was one of the letter writers to the New York Times on November 24th in response to my op-ed piece, and she wrote the following. Mr. Steiner might feel less lonely as an ethical vegan. He says he has just five vegan friends. If you recognize that he has allies in mere vegetarians like me, in ethical omnivores and even in carnivores, some of us agree with his outlook, but just don't have the fortitude to make every sacrifice he makes. In fact, this is the letter going on. In fact, a whole lot of semi-vegans can do much more for animals than the tiny number of people who are willing to give up all animal products and scrupulously relabels. Farm animals also benefit from the humane farming movement, even if the animal welfare changes it effects are not all that we should hope and work for. Uh, if the goal is not, this is near the end of her letter, if the goal is not moral perfection for ourselves, but the maximum benefit for animals, half measures ought to be encouraged and appreciated. And then she, she finishes, the last sentences are, go vegan, go vegetarian, go humane, or just eat less meat. It's all good advice from the point of view of de- doing better by
0: animals. That's the letter. That just goes to show how how she simply does not understand the economic realities of the property status of animals and how animal welfare regulation works. She simply doesn't understand it.
1: Well, I think I, I think that that is true. I also think it's the case, uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm admittedly and, and openly and, and unapologetically a hardliner about this. The things that stick with me in this type of a, a viewpoint are, You know, some of us agree with his outlook, but just don't have the fortitude to make every sacrifice he makes. You know, I don't see being a vegan as a particularly great sacrifice. There are inconveniences to it, but when one thinks about uh, what one gets in exchange, and I don't mean what I get, because I don't really get something. I think it's animals who get something in exchange. What's at stake in making these what I think are relatively modest sacrifices uh, what we what what the large community of sentient beings gets from it is absolutely staggeringly huge. I mean, if there's 53, according to the UN uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, 53 billion land animals alone killed every year for human consumption, it's absolutely staggering. And you know, in um, in the op-ed piece, I make I, I, I invoke uh, Isaac Bishai's singer's reference to the to the eternal Treblinka for animals, and that's something that some people got absolutely furious about that I would dare to make any kind of an analogy between the Holocaust and what happens to animals. And yet, anybody who is embracing a welfareist position um, for whatever reason they're doing it is failing to come to grips, in my mind, with one very very lapidary fact, and that is billions and billions. You know, tens of billions of animals every single year, and not even including fish, which uh, I bet that would raise the number dramatically. Given all the people in places like Indonesia who live on fish, Um, the the numbers are absolutely outrageous. And and uh, when you compare that to any kind of human holocaust, um, it's just orders of magnitude larger. Um, and in my judgment, at least, even though it may go against the intuitions of some people, um, the life of an animal is worth every bit as much as the life of a human being. I just don't see how you can have any kind of objective standpoint from which you can say the life of a human ought to matter more than that of an animal. And that's the thing that welfareism absolutely fails to to come to grips with.
0: Well, yeah, and, and I mean, uh, you frequently hear uh, that, that humans are worth more because they have greater intelligence or greater cognitive capacity. That gets us back to this whole similar minds thing. I mean, but that would be like saying that uh, a a human being uh who is smarter has a higher or is a greater moral value than a human being who is less intelligent and so therefore we ought to use the less intelligent human being as a forced organ donor for more intelligent human beings no one would argue that we see again in the con- when we when we tra- when 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 we we use these arguments in human context we see what the problems are uh yet we don't realize the speciesism when we start a- applying these arguments in the in the non-human context right.
1: You been used that, that that kind of comparison, you know, that, that tries to privilege the lives of humans over the lives of animals, as you know, has been used by everybody from, from from uh, Peter Singer, you know, from well, from Bentham in the first place, Jeremy Bentham, to Peter Singer, to Tom Regan, you know, the people who are considered, uh, and Singer and Regan are considered to be sort of the twin gods of the modern uh, animal rights movement, the second or third wave, whatever you'd call it, and yet they both make this kind of speciesist. Uh, comparison between humans and animals, and ultimately privilege humans. And, and Tom Regan, even though he takes a more or less deontological approach, which one would think would, would have better prospects for animals, ends up arguing quite explicitly, you could sacrifice in that lifeboat example any number of animals uh, to, to save one human being, which as I point out in Animals in the Moral Community, the book that came out last year, that means you could justify on Regan's reasoning sacrificing every single animal on earth.
0: To save one human being. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, I actually wrote uh, an article about about that, the dog in the lifeboat. I think it was in 1995 or 1996. It was included in um, as uh, one of the essays in Animals as Persons, which uh, Columbia published in 2008. Um, and uh, I made, you know, I made the same observation that, you know, once once you say that animal lives are worth Less because humans have greater opportunities for satisfaction, and that you could kill any number of dogs to save uh that, the, the 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 human on the lifeboat, then I agree i mean it it causes his entire theory to collapse uh and it it you know but again it's this notion it's this it's this elitism this 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 speciesist elitism that uh, even animal people, uh, and perhaps particularly animal people, uh, 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 carry through in their work. Well, look, it's been an interesting discussion. The one thing I think um, that that comes out of this is that um, there's Whenever this issue is discussed publicly, there is a great deal of response. And I think that it's important for those of us who take the abolitionist position to keep on articulating these ideas publicly and to engage people. And really, you know, there's a, there, there, there are some compelling arguments to basically ignoring the welfareists and spending... Uh, most of our time, as I now do, uh, spend most of my time talking with people who really aren't part of the movement. I, I'm not going to really convince the welfareists. I'm always happy and willing to debate them. They are the people who run and hide because they can't, uh, they can't defend their positions. But I'm always willing to debate them. But I, I also think that ultimately, um, there a lot Less educable than general members of the public who, when you discuss these issues with them, uh, are much more open, much less hostile, and you can really provoke people into thinking about things again. We see this with gary steiner 's editorial we see that uh, what happened with my my editorial about Michael Vick. Um, those sorts of abolitionist approaches triggered enormous responses from the public, from people who had never thought about the issue before, and people who became engaged. I I and I'm sure Gary will have the same experience. I can tell you now, two years down the road, I have gotten many emails from people who Wrote to me initially in 2007 about the Michael Vick editorial. Tell me now they've become vegans, or they're almost vegans, or are they're on their way to becoming vegans. And these were people who were omnivores when they picked up the newspaper and read "We're All Michael Vick" several years ago. So people can be educated. Creative, nonviolent vegan education does work. It is an it is the most effective way of incremental change we have to work on the demand end of things we're only going to change things when we change when we change the demand structure focusing on the supply structure focusing on the institutional users is never going to get us anywhere because as long as the demand is what it is as long as people want to continue to consume animal products there will be suppliers who will be there to supply those animal products and they will supply them as cheaply as they can so it's very very important to sort of recognize the importance and the efficacy of creative nonviolent vegan education as an important form of incremental change, and to also recognize that we ought not to get too discouraged when uh those the, when when welfareists uh become hostile uh and will not engage us because in the end they have nothing to say, and that's why they refuse to debate this issue; they have nothing to say. I want to end by Mentioning Gary's two books, uh, Anthropocentrism and Its Discontents, the moral status of animals in the history of Western philosophy uh, is a terrific book. Uh, it is, it is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the only real history of of uh, of uh, philosophical thinking about animals in in, in, in Western philosophical tradition. Uh, it's a real reference work which every animal advocate should have because um, I don't know of any other volume that uh, covers as much as he covers and brings all of these... Uh, various thinkers together it's a really excellent reference book as a matter of fact i have a copy in my home office i have a copy in my office i i own about four copies of this book um and i have them all over the place because they're really really important and i i uh, i'm sorry the book is really important and i use it frequently um gary's book animals and the moral community mental life moral status and kinship was published by Columbia University Uh, when was that was that last year year 2008 yeah and uh, it is also an absolutely uh, uh, marvelous book uh and um, uh, dealing with uh animal rights theory, talking about various animal rights and animal welfare theories and um and I think uh, it's and it 's also very readable uh although he gets into some very complex and complicated discussions uh He does so in a way that um, doesn't require that uh, you have studied um, logic uh, and epistemology and metaphysics for 20 years before you can understand it. So I recommend both books. He has another book coming out, um, and uh, he said at the beginning of the, uh, of the podcast that it was going to be a couple of years.
1: I'm writing that one now. It's, it's entitled Animals and the Limits of Postmodernism, uh, and that I'm, I'm going to be finishing over about the next year and three quarters. So it won't be out till two thousand
0: twelve. That's that that's a shame, Gary, because if any if the world needs anything, if the animal movement needs anything, it needs a book which will analyze the failure of postmodernism to 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 deal adequately with the animal question. In any event. Well that brings us to the conclusion of, of uh, podcast number 11 in Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you're not, and I want to thank Gary Steiner for being a guest on uh, the podcast, and I hope that he will come back and we'll have uh, discussions uh, in the future about things. If you're not vegan, go vegan. Uh, It's incredibly easy to do. It's better for your health. It's better for the health of the planet. And most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do. Thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have another podcast soon.